Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and lovers of the Bible. I'm Rachel Wren, and normally this is where Tim McNinch would pipe in with his self-introduction, but as we speak, he is actually completing his oral examination, the last of his comprehensive exams, which is your last big stressful push of your PhD coursework. Uh, He's doing that as I speak. Now, by the time you hear this, he will no doubt have successfully completed this final step and be on his way to a very long nap. Uh, But knowing Tim, he won't be there for long. That does mean, however, that y'all are stuck with me for this week. I have the full power to do whatever I want during this podcast for one tiny little episode. So, since Tim isn't here to keep me in line, I'm going to do things a little bit cray-cray today. And if you don't know what cray-cray means, then just find the nearest teenager. And the reason we're going to go a little cray-cray is because this podcast episode is for Christ the King Sunday, November 24th, 2019. And there's just one problem with that particular preaching day. If you've been a pastor for any length of time, you soon realize that there are certain Sundays where it doesn't really matter which lectionary year you're in, you're going to be giving about the same sermon. That means Sundays like Pentecost or Transfiguration and Christ the King Sunday. There are only so many ways to preach the message that Christ is our King before you start repeating yourself. But you are so lucky this week, because if you are sick of repeating yourself and preaching the same message on Christ the King Sunday, then take heart. I have for you a new way to preach that exact same message, but at least you won't feel like falling asleep in the middle of your own sermon. Which, by the way, is really the worst feeling, isn't it? When, when you're the one preaching and you're like, dang, I'm bored up here. That's the worst. But anyway, on to the text. Your new angle for the same old sermon comes to you this week from Jeremiah 23. And yes, I really do promise that you can wrestle a Christ the King sermon out of this text and this text alone. All right, ready? Now remember, the setting for Jeremiah is about 600 years before Jesus was born. God's people are supposed to have been living in covenant with God to worship only God, to love their neighbor, to care for the vulnerable, and to live in holiness so that through them, God can bless the entire world. And that promise is going back to Genesis 12, which God promises to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But just one problem, they haven't been doing that. Even worse, the worst offenders have been the kings and the leaders, and this is a major problem because this king is supposed to be the divine representative on earth. Over and over again, God sends prophets and messengers to draw the people back into relationship with the divine, and over and over again, the kings and leaders and people choose wealth, fame, power, and short-term status and security over God. And finally, God has had enough. God's people at this time in Judah are living as vassals to the much larger empire of Babylon. Babylon is in what would be roughly modern-day Iraq, and what they would do is go out and conquer neighboring nation-states, but instead of just... um, 
uh, drawing them completely into the fold. Uh, they would allow their monarchy, their kings, to, to, to keep on going as long as they promised fidelity to Babylon. That was a vassal state. So that's what Judah was at that time. But they were sick of being a vassal state. So they tried to rebel. And it takes a few years because, of course, you know, the post office was not quite as um, consistent, maybe, as it is today. But once the Babylonians find out about this rebellion, they are determined to squash it. So they send a conquering army to beat God's people back into place. The conquering army comes. It sets up a siege around the walls. The people cry out to God to save them. And God doesn't save them from it. Yeah, I'm going to just let you sit with that for a minute, which you should do with your people as well if you're preaching this text. God does not save them from it, at least not in the way they're expecting to be saved. And that's where our text for today comes into play. Jeremiah 23 verse 1 starts out with the hoy that we've talked about, which is an interjection usually of woe. Um, although every time I, I hear that word, I always think of Will Ferrell as Harry Carey on SNL doing the, hey, what if, hey. So it's not exactly the same thing, but that's just the image that always pops into my mind. So it starts out with hoy. So you know that this is going to at least start out with bad news. In verse 2, we get into um, a verse which has a little bit of wordplay going on here between what the shepherds have not done with the sheep and what God will do to the shepherds. Now, the Hebrew word that's at play here is pakad. Um, if you know a little bit of Hebrew, it's a pe kof dalit, or roughly P-Q-D for consonants. Um, yeah, hey, hey, fellow Hebrew nerds out there, how's it going? Now, pakad can mean a range of things. It can mean visit, it can mean attend to, muster, appoint. Um, and the NRSV does a decent job of translating the wordplay that's going on here between a word that can be gentle and nurturing or menacing, depending on the context. They say, you have not attended to my sheep, so I will attend to you, saith the Lord. Um, it's, it's okay. It does a pretty good job. But there's another way that's a little less clumsy and a little bit more idiomatic, a little bit more familiar to kind of what you would hear just in everyday life. Um, and that would be to translate it, take care. So it's is F God saying, you have not taken care of my sheep, so I'm going to take care of you. This is sort of God, Adonai, mafia boss stuff here with like a terrible mafia accent, which I can't do, so I won't subject you to it. But if you can do one, um, your congregation will totally get the point of what's going on here. Now, it moves in verse 3 to this phrase, be fruitful and multiply. And that should cause your ears to perk up. There, there's a consistency for God's wishes for, um, there's a consistency to God's wishes for God's people. Way back in Genesis 1, God creates humanity and tells them, be fruitful and multiply. In Psalm 1, the poet rejoices that dwelling in the word of God leads one to an existence that's much like a tree planted by streams of water, which always bears fruit in its season and whose roots never fail. Be fruitful and multiply. 
Here in Jeremiah, God talks about wanting to kabatz the people, to gather, to collect, to draw them in. And if you're familiar with any modern Hebrew terms, this word kabatz in the ancient Hebrew is, yes, related to the word kibbutz, which is a term used today to describe a communal settlement in Israel, which is typically based around a farm. But anyway, let me get back on track here. God wants to kabatz the people, to gather them in, to bring them back to their fold where they can be fruitful and multiply. I almost picture God here as this caretaker and us as tiny sheep, but not really sheep, more like kittens, where God has this wonderful bed set up for us, but we keep climbing out of it and God snags us by the scruff of our necks and gathers us together, brings us back in and says, there, now be fruitful and multiply. And out we climb again. So in verses 4 to 6, we hear what God's plan is in this situation. And these next verses all sound great. They sound fantastic to us who know the end of the story, at least. God will raise up shepherds, and under their rule, the people shall no longer fear or be dismayed or be missing. And interestingly, this is actually another form of that verb pakad from the wordplay in verse 2. Almost all the characters in this text pakad at some point, but it's a different meaning in uh, each instance. This is some pretty clever writing that the Holy Spirit inspired here, isn't it? So anyway, there's a day coming in these verses when God will raise up a Savior. One as great as David, a righteous leader who will do justice for the people and will cause righteousness to flood the land, and he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. And it sounds great, doesn't it? There's only one problem. It's not what the people are crying out and asking for. Because God doesn't say, that day is now, when the marauding army is on your doorstep. God says, yes, that day is in the future. So you have to picture this scene. There's a conquering army on your doorstep. The only thing between you and death by army is the city wall. And the only thing between you and death by starvation is how long the food stores can last. And all the while, you're staring death by in-laws right in the face because everyone is packed into that city together. You can be darn sure that those people were crying out to God to save them. And most of the prophets of the king's court were telling them, Peace, be still, don't worry. God will save us because God always has in the past. And then there's this one prophet. There's this one prophet who's saying something different. He doesn't have quite the same message as the rest of them. In fact, he kind of puts a hand out and says, No, actually. The salvation you want will come, but it won't come in the form you're wanting, and certainly not the one you're expecting. God knows the army is there. God is not going to stop the army. The army is going to come in and then take you far, far away to live as war captives, away from home for many, many years. And the salvation the salvation will be that God is going to bring you back. Christ the King does not work the way we want or expect a king to work. Sometimes that's even true of his salvation. Sometimes being saved from something actually means having to go through it 
instead of around it. Sometimes being fruitful and multiplying takes place in a way that looks at first unfruitful and like decline or reduction instead of multiplication. Sometimes with Christ all things are possible might mean that even the unthinkable is possible, not because God will exempt you out of it, but because God will bring you through it. We often like to say that the reign of Christ turns everything on its head. What we see here in Jeremiah is a God who has been turning everything on its head since the beginning, up to and including salvation. But the goal has always been the same. A people planted, a land tended, goodness and justice bearing fruit and multiplying in the streets, and a people who cannot help but trust that God is our righteousness, our refuge, and our strength. Now, if Tim were here, he would say something about how incredibly brilliant everything was that I just said, and how much he thinks that someone should give me a job. Or he'd say something like, well, I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks, Rachel. And then I'd say, thanks for listening, and we'd all go off on our merry ways. Special shout out today to my absent partner, Tim McNinch. Congratulations on passing your exams. I had no doubts, and I look forward to seeing you again now that you can come up from the depths of exam preparation. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our past episodes with us and our special guests, head on over to the website, firstreadingpodcast.org, or find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast subscription. Tune in next week with our special guest, Tyler Mayfield. He's going to talk about reading the prophetic book of Isaiah liturgically through the lens of the seasons of Advent and ethically through the lens of love for our Jewish neighbor. It should be an awesome conversation, and I can't wait to hear it. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. Thanks for listening, and happy preaching.